words I speak, the words we hear, be your words of life, our God. Amen. I was struck as uh, we were listening to the reading from the Old Testament. Um, most, most scholars would say that what we have as the Old Testament wasn't begun to be written until the exile, until the destruction of Jerusalem. And the leadership, at least, were taken off to exile in Babylon. And they wrote it, really, because, well, the events of the exile were pretty cataclysmic. The destruction of Jerusalem and being carried off uh, to a foreign land. And there was an awareness that something had gone wrong. And up to that point, they'd relied on the prophets and the priests and uh, to keep them on the straight and narrow. And clearly that hadn't worked, so there was a need to be a lot more clear about what God wanted. And so in light of that... Uh, I was struck by those words in Joshua, uh, you are witnesses against yourselves. And that would have been how it was heard. That way back at the beginning of the story, the people of Israel said, yes, the Lord our God will be our God. We will forsake all foreign, all other foreign gods. We will just have the Lord our God as our God. And then they clearly failed. So they could go right back to that and say, this is why that has happened. We made that statement right back then. And now we suffer the consequences for our inability to live that out. That was just an aside, really. I always like how Joshua has this wonderful story about how they swept into the Holy Land and conquered all before them and all was right with the world at the end of the book of Joshua. And then uh, we have Judges, which has the flip side of the story, which was they kind of got in there a little bit and then over the next few generations had to kind of slowly fight their way out and slowly conquer all the other people. So there's kind of two conflicting stories side by side, again and aside. Last Wednesday I went to a meeting of the Tauranga Ministers Association. I turn up every now and again. Because uh, I think it's important that I am there, uh, although my theology is a little bit different from most of those who attend, but that's okay. And uh, we were having a conversation about our experience of being pastors. Most of us have been uh, pastors or priests uh, in ordained ministry, however we described that, for uh, a large number of years. And uh, it's 28 years ago that I was deacon, so it's a long time. And it just makes me feel old, really. And, uh, and one of the pastors who's been a pastor in the city for over 30 years, I think it was about 35 years, said um, the thing that he noticed, the thing that has changed the most, is that people um, need, seem to be noticing the things they need to deal with a lot more than they did when he was first a pastor. And he said, and that's because we are rushing headlong towards the coming of Christ. It's going to happen really soon, and so the pressure is on for people to sort themselves out. And I found that a really interesting statement, um, partly because that's just not my theology, and so it's not my experience, but also because, well, I'd just been reading the gospel reading that we heard this morning and some of the reading around that, and it seemed to me that Matthew was writing exactly to those who thought that, that they were rushing headlong to
towards the coming of Christ. Now Matthew, uh, it is thought by most commentators, was writing to Jewish Christians. And like all Christians uh, of that time, they thought that Christ's return was imminent. That it was going to happen really soon. But most people would say that Matthew, like the other Gospel writers, was writing at least 40 and maybe 50 years after the events of the crucifixion. And as Jewish Christians that he was writing to, they had gone through some of the most cataclysmic events. If you ever wanted signs for the second coming, for the final judgment and the establishment of God's reign on earth, then the events they had lived through surely were signs that that was imminent. They had witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the eviction of every single Jew out of the Holy Land. They were all exiled. It was illegal under Roman law for Jews to live in Palestine. Now, you want signs of the second coming? That's got to be the biggest of all signs. And yet here they were, still waiting. And so when Matthew wrote his Gospel, that was one of the big issues he had to address. Why is it that Christ has not returned? We were rushing headlong towards his coming, and his coming has not happened. What is going on here? Now it's a theme that's in all the Gospels, but it's a really big thing in Matthew's Gospel. He's the one that kind of really addresses it. And the story we heard this morning is the second of four parables set within two chapters devoted to this issue around Christ's second coming, the final judgment, and the establishment of God's reign on earth. Now this block of teaching is the last block in Matthew's Gospel of Christ's teaching. He finishes this teaching and then we get into the events uh, of, well, Palm Sunday and then Holy Week. So we're nearly here. So it's a big thing and it's the last thing that Jesus talks about. And in the parable we heard this morning, which is, it's really different from most of what how Matthew presents Jesus' teaching, which is a lot more vague and, and really inclusive. And this seems to be much more straightforward and exclusive. And so uh, I kind of wonder whether Jesus actually taught this or whether this is something Matthew has made up. But, I mean, that's irrelevant in many ways because it's there, so you have to deal with it. Um, but it's here in this last block of teaching. And he uses the common events of a wedding. Now, a, a wedding was really different in those days than it is today. So we need to be careful that we don't kind of transpose today's weddings onto these events. And so the first thing we need to note is that bridesmaids is a really tricky, unfortunate word that the translators of the NRSV have used. It's not really bridesmaids as we understand it. Uh, these are virgins, and they're not really people that the bride has chosen. These are members of the bridegroom's 
village and extended family, and they are there to welcome the bridegroom and the bride when they return. So, the groom would leave his parents' house and he would go to the bride's family's house where he would be, uh, there would be a ceremony and he would then receive the bride and he would then return to his parents' place where he and his bride would now start their new life and there would be a party when they returned. And these so-called bridesmaids, although they're not bridesmaids as we understand it, their job was to welcome them when they returned to the parents' place. Now, there was a kind of expected time frame in which all of this would happen, and so that was all good. But, as with all things wedding, things can go wrong, and you can be delayed. And so a wise virgin would take extra oil with her, because you never knew what was going to happen and how long you would be waiting. And so Jesus, Matthew has Jesus tell the story about ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five of whom were foolish. Now implied in the foolish, the actions of the foolish virgins is that they know the time frame and they can rely on that time frame and so this is all the oil they need. Now when we put that in the context of a whole group of Christians who knew the time frame of Christ's return, they were rushing headlong towards it. There's a clear warning here of the time frame is not ours to determine or to know. We need to be like the wise virgins and be prepared to be in this for the long haul. The wise virgins had no idea, well, they had, a, they had an idea about when the bridegroom was expected, but they also knew that the timing in the end was the bridegroom's. The bridegroom would return when the bridegroom was ready to return, and there was nothing they could do to make that happen any quicker. And so they were there with their oil. So the message for Matthew's church is, yes, we're rushing headlong, Yes, it's imminent, but actually we have no idea when it will be. And so we need to be ready to be in this for the long haul. And we need to develop practices and a way of life that will sustain us for the long haul. Maybe for the rest of our lives. And that has been true for the last 2,000 years. This kind of tension of we are rushing headlong towards this event when... God's reign is established here on earth when all that God hopes for will be established here on earth. But we don't know the timing and so we need to have lives of faithful lives that are sustained for the long term. Now I'm going to make an assumption here that I'm talking to a bunch of people who know all about sustaining lives of faith for the long haul. Because, well, I'm going to assume that most of you have done just that, kept your faithful lives going for a long time, and that you have good practices that keep that life of faith going. So I'm going to give you a moment to just think about what has sustained your life for the long haul. What has kept you going 
over these years. And you can think about that quietly to yourself, or if you feel a little bit brave, you can talk to your neighbour about that, and you might be able to share some ideas about how you have sustained your life. So we'll just pause for a moment and think about how we sustain our lives of faith. And then I have one final comment for the end. So, a moment. How do we sustain our lives of faith? You can either sit quietly or talk to your neighbour. So I hope that you uh, kind of continue those conversations. There is a there is a temptation to think that um, because we've made it this far, that we've got it nailed. And um, I have to say that my experience is that I constantly feel like I haven't got it nailed, and that I uh, am always being invited to learn new practices that sustain my life of faith and draw me into a deeper life of faith. And I think that's partly what Matthew was on about here, that it's not just about sustaining the life we have, but it's about being drawn 
into a deeper life of faith. Some of the um, commentaries, I mean, I use the internet for my um, commentaries, and they're all on blogs, and um, because they're on blogs, there's always the capacity for people to comment, which is uh, almost as interesting as sometimes as the commentaries themselves. And um, one, of, one of the sites I used, there were several comments there about, um, almost angry really, about how it, it's not about the second coming, and that surely we should be uh, awake to God present in our lives now. And certainly that's true. And part of um, being prepared and part of sustaining these lives of faith is becoming more aware of God's activity in the world ongoing activity, establishing the dawn of the reign of God's God's reign here and now, establishing the kind of things that Jesus lived out and talked about. Um, we don't have to wait to the end of time to see that. And I guess for some of us we're more comfortable with that imagery than with the second coming imagery. For me, I would say that's probably more where I'm at. But it kind of raises some interesting questions about what does the reign of God look like? There are two events that are, one was happening happened last week and one is happening this week uh, that for me uh, raise questions about our ongoing life of faith and how we see God's ongoing activity in the world. Last Wednesday was the, I think it was Wednesday was the fifth of November and. Uh, which is Guy Fawkes, which is problematic in its own right. Uh, but it's also the anniversary of when 1,600 New Zealand militia and constabulary invaded the village of Parehaka in Taranaki in 1881. Uh, they invaded a village uh, to, in, to arrest uh, the prophets, Te Fiti Rongumai and Tohu Kakahi. And they wanted to arrest them because they did not like what they were on about. Now Tafiti and Tohu had established a model Māori village using the best of Pāka technology, uh, but encased within Māori values, uh, and they'd done that in a way that maintained Māori mana over that land. Uh, their village was probably more modern and had was better established than the European cities around it, like New Plymouth. Um, they were arrested and taken away. They were met, that 1600 force, by uh, the entire village sitting in the centre, and they were greeted by children, and all the people there uh, being told not to move. And they were told not to move partly because the constabulary wanted an excuse to wipe them off the face of the earth. So they had guns, they were all armed, uh, and so Tafiti and Tōru had said, we will not move. And what had really annoyed the government was when they tried to take the land around Parihaka village, uh, Tafiti and Tōru had embarked on a campaign of non-violent opposition, which meant they ploughed up the roads and they, they fenced the fields and um, they did all sorts of things that just completely stopped the surveyors uh, in, their, uh, in their work. So we remember that um, extraordinary sad moment in our history. 
uh, a moment which is still not well known uh, and for many people not acknowledged. On Tuesday we have Remembrance Day, the, the day when we pause at 11 o'clock and remember the end of the First World War. The war to end all wars. A war where over 10% of the New Zealand population, men and women, mostly men, went to fight. And where our casualties, and where we went to fight uh, for king and empire. And our casualty rate was, some would place it around 58%. So that's men killed and wounded, if we take into account those who died over the five years after the war. It's up around 18,000, 18, over 18,000. It's horrific uh, casualty rate for this country. And uh, from my own family, I know the cost of that for my mother on my mother's side, who never saw her father again, uh, and whose mother never had a husband again. And I'm going to uh, put my head on the top here and say that it always offends me when I read that we should give thanks for these men who died to preserve our way of life. Our way of life was never a threat. This was a war that should never have been fought. It was only inevitable because the powers couldn't work out how not to fight it. And our way of life was never in question. No one's way of life was in question. It was just a war that was fought to fight a war. And sadly, which is different from other wars that we've been involved in, like the Second World War. We can say that clearly for that war. And sadly, the decisions made at the end of that war sowed the seeds for the Second World War and for the Middle East conflict of today. Now, if we are faithful people, what does our faith say to those two events? How do we honour those who fought in that war? And we need to honour them. My grandfather fought in it. My great-grandfather died in it. My grandfather's brother died in it. These are wars that were fought. Our people were there. We need to remember them. We need to honour them. But what does our faith say to that? And how do we honour them in a way that no more young New Zealanders go overseas to die on foreign shores? So I invite you to think about that over the next week, weeks, how do we sustain our lives of faith? And what does our lives of faith say to the events around us?